When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome into this edition of UAP Weekly. It's Stephen Diener right here on the Unidentified Alien Podcast Weekly Edition. Um, my Lord, <laughs> my gosh, it has been a week. It's only Tuesday and it feels like I've gone through three weeks worth of UAP related uh, happenings, starting with this past weekend and moving into the UAP hearings that have officially been announced for July 26th. I'm going to touch on both of, things, both of those things as quickly as I possibly can because I want to get into this interview with DC Long. Um, it is a little bit lengthy, uh, just like our, my, my conversation with Michael Herrera a few weeks ago. And just like that interview, it was very worth it. This one is very worth it as well because DC Long is fantastic here, and you're going to hear that in just a few minutes. But to address first the um, hearing, so the House Oversight Committee has announced uh, Representative Tim Burchett from Tennessee, who has been one of the big names kind of spearheading this charge for the uh, the House, obviously Marco Rubio being one of the big names in the Senate, along with uh, Senator Gillibrand as far as a bipartisan effort there. Um, so Representative Burchett announced uh, yesterday afternoon that it is happening Wednesday, July 26th, almost exactly a week from today, almost exactly a week. Uh, the House Oversight Committee will be holding their interviews. They're, they're going to be holding their testimonies. Uh, it is said that David Grush will be one of the witnesses, along with a few others who... Um, we're still waiting to hear on all of the details on those. I think it might be a few more days before we hear as of this recording. Obviously, if you're listening closer to the date, then you most likely know who the witnesses are. But as of right now, as I say this on uh, July 18th, that uh, we, we don't know all of the names, but it is being said that David Grush is going to testify. This is, make no mistake about it, I know that's going to have their it's detractors. You're going to have people say this is all distraction from the quote-unquote real issues. You're going to have people say that nothing's going to come from it. It's just more of the same you know, white noise coming out of Washington, D.C. Um, I have high hopes for this. Although, but what, By the way, all of those things that I just said, those examples, they all might be true. But I have really high hopes for this hearing. I think... I'm just going to put this out there now, and I might eat my words later, but I think this could be the most significant thing to happen uh, toward UAP disclosure to the general public that has um, maybe since the crash at Roswell when it was originally reported in the newspaper before that detraction. 
I, I really think that this is going to do more to put this into the national, international spotlight, quite frankly, than anything has ever done before, again, outside of Roswell. But that was way that was different times in 1947. It's a lot different now in 2023 when it comes to mass media and social media. So uh, I think this is highly, highly significant. Um, and I we're going to see how it goes. Again, I could be wrong, but that is what my gut is telling me, that this is absolutely enormous and it's it's going to maybe change some perspectives when it comes to this conversation in a different way that uh, I think, you know, some people are going to get going to have to get used to. They're going to hear a lot of things. The general public is going to hear a lot of things that they haven't heard before. So we'll see what comes of it. Next week should be very, very interesting. And, you know, you know that uh, I'm going to have everything for you that you need to know from that. So definitely looking forward to see how that turns out. And then real quick, I'm going to touch on all the stuff that happened this weekend on my personal side, I'm not going to you know, go here and pontificate. Uh, a lot happened on social media. You can go on Twitter and look at all of it. Um, if you haven't been keeping up with that, it was um, an unintentional viral post that I ended up doing on Saturday night uh, from a, a source that got with me and went over some of the things that have been talked about behind the scenes about special force uh, forces, you know, teaming up with task forces to go in and take out some of these black sites that uh, have this alien tech, you know, some of the stuff that we've talked about before, you know, these these black ops sites that are holding these things, um, you know, from the public and using them for nefarious reasons. And some of the things that David Grush has talked about, you know, that these things are being done without congressional oversight, you know, private armies and such. So, that's what I spoke about on Saturday when I posted that video on Twitter. I spoke about how uh, I've been given information that in two months, the plan, the planning stages of two months from now, that they would go and go after these black sites within the United States and forcefully take the uh, tech that has been held from civilization for decades. And that got a lot of attention, um, some good, some bad. And I... You know, addressed a lot of the concerns from that video on Twitter. I did a follow-up video yesterday. So you can go watch that. I don't want to spend too much time on it here because I want to devote today's episode or the majority of it to this interview with uh, DC Long because that is uh, what this deserves. That's that, that deserves your attention. So if you want to catch up on all the drama that took place on social media with uh, my video that, again, some good, some bad as far as the attention went from that you can check it all out. I address a lot of the questions, a lot of the concerns on there. You know, like if you why are you talking about this, you're going to tip off, you know, the black site companies. Just to quickly mention that I'm not tipping anybody off. If I know about it, they know about it. Simply put, my uh, mission basically was to uh, be the first one to put out that that uh, statement of two months that these conversations are taking place for this to happen in two months raids, so to speak, whatever you want to call them. Um, and, you know, if, if that's the case, if it happens, we'll see. But just know that if I know about it, then they know about it. The mission was to put it out there more, to add more pressure on these companies because they don't want to have to do that. Um, but again, that was the biggest thing, the biggest complaint that I got was, well, you're tipping them off. Now they're going to move everything. No, it doesn't work that way. They already know about it. It was... 
all about putting pressure on them. And thankfully, the video went viral, and hopefully that pressure got put on them. So we don't know if these raids are actually going to take place. The whole point was to let everybody know that it is in the planning stages. It is being talked about. Whether or not it happens remains to be seen, but I will keep you updated. As I know, if I'm given this information and I'm given the clearance to give it to you, then by golly, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give it to you. So that's that's always my mission for you. Oh, I guess I should probably say, if you don't know the Twitter handle, at UAPodcast850 is where you can find all the stuff I was just talking about, at UAPodcast850 on Twitter. All right, and now it's time. D.C. Long, I mentioned it earlier as uh, we started here today on UAP Weekly, and he's been kind enough to join the show here today. Uh, you know him if, if you got to watch the Disclosure Conference back on June 12th in Washington, D.C. with uh, Dr. Greer. Uh, D.C. Long was up there along with Mike Herrera and Eric Hecker and a few of the guys telling their stories and, and giving their testimony, their whistleblower testimony, really. And uh, D.C. has been one of those guys who's brave enough to do this. And, again, really appreciate him coming on today to go more in depth about his story and his background with all this. So, D.C., thank you for joining uh, UAP Weekly here today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no problem. It's it's my pleasure. So, before we kind of get into uh, the nuts and bolts of it, so to speak, I want to just, for people who aren't familiar with you or your background, can you just give a little background of you know, what you've done as far as military history, things like that, so they can get a little feel for who you are. Absolutely. I joined the military in 1997. Uh, from 97 to 2013, whenever my career ended, uh, during that time, I helped multiple MOSs. I actually started out in the National Guard. I went to basic after my junior year of high school. After my senior year, I went to AIT. Went to war with the National Guard for my first deployment. And after I got back, I transitioned to active duty, uh, became an 11 X-ray, went through um, uh, infantry school down in Fort Benning, Georgia, jump school and ranger school there as well. And that's what led me to Fort Bragg after I was injured in a combat jump. So and we'll and we'll get to that later, actually. And so you've been through uh, a few tours, right? Were you in, in Iraq and Afghanistan or just one or the other? Both. Both, okay. So let's let's jump into the story that you were telling at the Disclosure Conference because I think your story really resonated with a lot of people. Of course, I mean, look, you know, Mike Herrera and a lot of the guys, um, everybody had kind of like their own feel when they told their own personal account. And I think yours really touched a lot of people because of the journey that you went through, the ups and the downs and the downs and the ups. So... It, I know you you talked about while you were there something that happened with you and your father. Your father was a government contractor, is that right? He had his own business? Correct. And he very very successful business and you were working with him at the time, right? He he had called me and asked me to come work with him. Okay. You know, anytime that I had a break, I would I would do it anyways because you know, just that's the way we were. So but, um, he had contracts with the Army Corps of Engineers up and down the eastern seaboard from Fort Drum, New York, wow. uh, all the way down to Florida. Uh, you know, it's, it was a lucrative business, but, you know, it sounds cheesy, but that's not what we were in it for. You know, we, we just really enjoyed the work, and he was such a perfectionist. Yeah. 
maybe to a fault. But uh, yeah, that's what took us to Fort Bragg. Uh, we'd always been kind of centric there because I grew up about 45 minutes east from Fort Bragg in Bladen County, North Carolina. Mm. And all of our work had started with you know, residential houses, barns, I mean, all uh, contracts. We did a ton of churches around North Carolina in uh, South Carolina. But um, he got to a level, finally got in with the Army Corps of Engineers in the late 80s. And that's whenever he started out for Bragg doing the work. So he had you know, a name built out there with his company, Lonco Builders. Okay. So, and that that's when kind of, what year was it when the event took place that kind of changed everything for you guys? 2010. Okay. And so... I, and this is what we kind of focused on at the at the conference, the disclosure conference was 2010 Fort Bragg. You guys come in for a job, and I guess you saw something you weren't necessarily supposed to see, right? Yeah, he was at the time. You know, like I said, if I wasn't directly involved in the contract, you know, then we just didn't talk about it. Yeah. He was a self sustained unit. I think at the time that. Uh, all of this happened. He had about 75 employees that were just in and around Fort Bragg itself. But um, uh, like I said, it was 2010. Um, he had called me up, and he was working, working at uh, 18th Airborne Headquarters in the G5 War Room, uh, just doing minor innovations. It it wasn't anything special, really. Uh, just, you know, modernizing the room. And uh, he called me and asked me if I could go help him lay out for a bid, uh, which to us just means you know, taking down measurements. Um, I knew it was something to do with SF by the way that he was approaching it because he's done a ton of work with, for those guys, the shoot houses, uh, lanes, uh, their barracks, uh, HQ, yeah, just a ton of work, everything he laid his hands on. And uh, But he called me. And asked me to meet him at 18th Airborne Headquarters. So that's where I met him. And um, whenever I got there, that's whenever he told me that he was waiting on a contact and escort from JFK Warfare Center to meet with us and take us down there. Um, and now I have to preface that by saying that whenever we got there, because I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, these stories are great, but we don't have any pictures. Hmm. Well, it, the reason why is, you know, whenever we're going into something like that, but just 18th Airborne Headquarters in general, not even anything special, just admin, you have to surrender your identification and your telephone. Any form of electronics, it doesn't matter if it's a smartwatch, which I don't think we had those back then. Yeah. But everything had to be turned over, which wasn't anything different than the norm. Yeah, that's, that's just what we were used to. And, um, so after we had surrendered our electronics and ID, um, van pulls up and Al pops one of the guys that he knew actually both of us knew. This is one of the guys that used to go down to my father's land in Blake County and hunt. Uh, we would go with this guy all over the United States hmm. just to go on hunts, Mason, Colorado and Canada, Georgia for boar hunts, uh, duck hunts down in Stuttgart, Arkansas. Hmm. And, um, we did that, the Arkansas swing about five or six times, but these were people that we, we knew, you know, intimately. Right. We thought trusted. So there wasn't much to it, uh, in the sense that I felt like we had anything to worry about. It was just, you know, like I said, business as usual. And, um, uh, 
So he pulls up and he's uh, opens the door to this van and it's it's like a box van uh, in the sense that it was boxed out inside, meaning that it looked like a prisoner transport that you had no access to the front compartment back, no windows whatsoever. There were just two flat seats, almost like a cattle car. Hmm. And uh, so we hop in and they take us. It was about a 15 minute drive. And my dad was telling me that it's a place called Range 19, and they were wanting to update what they called an underground shoot-house. Um, it's the same things we used to use whenever we were training for uh, uh, CQB flowing through rooms. It was intended to be an elevated platform above a mock house that you can observe down to the operators just flowing through the rooms to clear the buildings, uh, engage hostels, and the like. So... Yet again, it didn't seem like anything that warranted any form of caution. It was just for him business as usual. Right. Uh, like I said, uh, so we pull up to the place called Range 19, and we were so close to the front door that as soon as he opened the doors, we were less than four feet from the front entrance. And there was trash everywhere. Mm. It looked like a literal dump. Like they built this little hut with a 45-degree angle concrete barriers, and then there's the door. And it was just trash everywhere. So I started giggling because I was <laughs> like, man, this is, this is a crap hole. Yeah. But we go inside, and there's another escort there. Um, another escort there that met us at the door. And he walks us uh, to a freight elevator. And whenever the doors open, and it, this thing was massive, it had to be at least 10, 12 foot wide wow. uh, compared to the ones that I've seen before. And uh, we step in, and I noticed to the right that there were a series of buttons, just the way it normally would be in a freight elevator, but they didn't have any numbers on it whatsoever. It was just nondescript, opaque. It was just nothing. And I thought that was strange. As we're going down, uh, the other guy – says to us, keep your heads down and keep your eyes on the heels of the man in front of you or you'll be shot. And me and my dad kind of snickered, but, you know, the guy just kind of cocked his eyebrow at us. And I was like, oh, okay. Wow. So the door is open and we go into this hangar. Uh, and I can preface that by saying we, it took about 30 seconds to get down there to where we were, to the floor that we exited. Wow. <laughs> And um, the doors open, and it, again, there did, didn't seem to be anything of consequence there. Uh, there was this large, I've spoken about the monolithic slab. It, it was probably 20 foot long, maybe 7 to 10 feet wide, or 7 to 10 feet tall. I couldn't really tell how wide it was from the first angle that I got on it. But I, I could tell that there was you know, nothing holding this thing up, and it looked like it was about a foot and a half almost off of the ground, but there was nothing holding it up. Again, I, I didn't see any problem with that. I mean, because it, it could be you know, held up by a post. It, it just wasn't something that really caught my attention at that point. But the closer we got to this thing at the center, there was this black box on the top of it, and it looked like a, a GMTK box. It was about this wide, about that tall, and it had two leads coming off of it, and it was black, but you could see something inside of it. And it wasn't uh, glowing. There weren't lights. It was just almost like a smoky finish, hmm. like uh, 
like tinted headlights or something like that that are super dark, but you can still see what's behind it. You just don't really know what it was. But the closer I get to the center of this thing, I started feeling this intense vibration. Hmm. And you would expect to to hear something that's that intense, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't producing any noise whatsoever. The only thing that we could really hear were the sounds of our our boots walking through this area and we were on a straight path. There was two little yellow lines on the side and uh, the only part of it that was illuminated was directly above our heads. But the closer I got to the center, it started growing just, I can't say louder, but it was just more intense and the frequency didn't change at that point. It was just, it was so powerful. Hmm. Honestly, I would love to experience it again because I've never experienced anything like it. It was so strange to me. And, uh, you know, I remember at one point I kind of reached up and, you know, flicked my ear like I was digging something out of it to see if I was losing my freaking mind. Yeah. But we get to the center of it, and it was so intense. I, I just had to stop. So I was like, oh, I got time to shoot. I bent down, and I'm glancing over, and I can see that there is nothing under this thing, hmm. absolutely nothing holding it up. And behind it, I could see what looked like a boulder, but it was a really off-white chalky color. And it was sitting flat on the ground. And I looked back at about a 45 behind me, and there was another one. And I could see a guy just moving it with his hand. Like and then in he mid-air. pull it back this way, move it back that way. Say again? It was like in midair. This, this yeah. Bolt, he was yeah. just spinning it in the air. It wasn't as high as the slab that I was beside, but it was enough that you could see through beneath it. Huh. And it, it just, it blew my mind. And at that point, that's when the escort who was standing behind me nudged me in the back and said, let's go. So we stand up, we got follow, excuse me, follow on, go down a flight of stairs. And that's whenever we arrived to the, the area where we, our AO, the area where we were going to build uh, this mock house inside of there for you know with a high-rise observation deck and we were probably in there maybe 15 minutes did nothing more than just literally take measurements of the dimensions of the room and and just to see what we were going to put in there you know so we know the amount of materials we had to bring back if at all and we're coming back the same way we just went down we go up the flight of stairs and we come into the same room, and I'm excited at this point, man. I'm like, I've got to check this thing out again. And we get in there, and like I said, it had only been 15 minutes max. It didn't take us no time to do what we had to do down there, but it was absolutely gone. Wow. There was nothing in there. And you know, I've I said it before, I believe, in Washington that the only thing I could hear was our feet. Because, you know, we didn't have to communicate to pull tape. That's just the easiest freaking thing in the world. But you would be able to hear if somebody was moving something that massive. Now, they asked me before how heavy, since I had a construction background like that would help, Hmm. how heavy do you think that slab was? I was like, man, I don't know. You know, maybe 55 tons because you had to have the same ounce as an M1 Abrams. There's no way you didn't. That thing was just just massive i was awestruck by how big it was but like i said we go and going back there's nothing there and at that point i was thinking oh, oh 
you know, <laughs> <laughs> something's not right. <laughs> but, you know, we didn't say a word on the way back. Me and my father or nothing. We we're just, I guess, trying to absorb what happened. And I wish looking back that I would have talked to him about it to see what his take was. But, you know, it'll lead up to see why we never had that conversation. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. So what did you think it was in the moment? I mean, you're seeing these giant stones, this monolithic stone, you know, any estimate, maybe around 50 tons, like you're saying, where this thing is floating in the air, they're spinning these boulders in midair, what would you, and you feel the vibration? Were you putting two and two together at that point? That is it possible they're using some type of sound resonance, some some type of vibration technology to actually make heavy objects levitate, or was it just so much happening in the moment that it didn't even cross your mind? So much did in the moment, you know. Aside of knowing that, you know, I really shouldn't have been there, or at the very least, shouldn't have been as curious as I was. It, it's, you know, I could probably relate it like this: if, you know, having the fact of something doesn't even compare to the emotion that's experienced along with it. It's like walking down the road with your friends, with your wife, and then you see a pedestrian get hit by a car. Hmm. You, you know that uh, that's a car, that's a person, wham, it's done, whatever happened, happened. But the emotional aspect of it is one of the most difficult things to describe. There just aren't enough words for it. There was so much going through my mind. I'd never, I'd been conditioned not to ask too many questions, but that was just within the purview of you know, things that may or may not have been classified, you know, operations that we were part of that you just couldn't talk about, not because it was sensational. It's just nobody's business. And the implications are much farther reaching than an opinion. You let some of that stuff out, you could start an international incident. But later I started to, to think about, you know, everything that you just said that, you know, I think the, the first thing that I really experienced, Experience was confusion as to why this was yeah, being hidden, why it was such a big secret, because the world could benefit so much from something like that. Right. And you know, then uh, the further I went along, the first thing that really struck me was thinking about you know the the discussion about how the pyramids were created. You know, some of the hieroglyphs that depict things that just can't be. You know, mm-hmm. the, the equipment, the flying vehicles, the Anunnaki, the giant people that are there and conducting this entire operation. It, it was it was just really confusing. At first, I had to wrap my head around what the hell I just saw. I had to rationalize it to make sure that it was real. And then I was just left in a, a perpetual state of confusion. So what happened? after? I mean, so you guys leave. You and your, you and your father leave, you know, range 19. You, you see this. I guess we can call some type of, you know, top secret, 
you know, uh, military experiment using some, you know, this, this top secret technology, what happens after you leave? I mean, you just, do they let you go even though they know that you saw it? Well, after we left, we got back to 18th Airborne Headquarters to retrieve uh, our electronics, our identification, get back our vehicles so we could just go our separate ways. One of the guys said, come with me. We go upstairs to 18th Airborne, where my dad was working in the G5. And there was a guy that I recognized that was sitting at a table, and he had two pieces of paper in front of him. He's like, hey, boys. And he just slid it up. And I looked at it and I started giggling. It, it was just more or less an NDA debrief. Mm. And I was like, I'm not signing this. You know what I do for a living, man. And I just tossed it. I walked out. And apparently my father did the same thing. You know, I could hear them talking, but I couldn't decipher what they were saying. <laughs> so I go down and I'm waiting for him to come back out. Out. And then the other guys come with him. Two of them go their separate ways, and uh, separate ways. And that last uh, gentleman that was standing there, I hesitate to call him that at this point. You'll understand why mm. <laughs> later. But uh, he's standing there, and they're having a, a pretty heated discussion. And you know, my dad just turned around and looked at me and did like that. And so I was like, "All right." So I just got in my truck and left. Just went on about my business as usual. Uh, I went back to my old house in Bladen County. I was getting ready to go back down to Georgia. And uh, 24 hours later, uh, when I was getting ready to go, uh, I get a phone call from one of his workers. Uh, I don't think it would hurt to say his name now. Since he's since passed, but uh, his name was Marlon. And um, he's like, hey, man, we can't go to work today. I was like, why? Are you sick? He's like, no, he's like, uh, the, the shop's closed. He's like, everything's gone. I was like, what do you mean everything's gone? He's like, I'm telling you, man, everything's gone. So it took him a while to convince me that what he was telling me, because, you know, we were all about pulling pranks on each other, you know. So I make my way back uh, down to my dad's shop. Well, I, I say my dad's shop. It was ours, you know, where we housed all of our equipment. And uh, we had millions of dollars worth of equipment. And it sounds like a lot, but you ask anybody – you know, it works in the construction or farming. You know, just one piece of equipment can set you back $700,000. Wow. But, uh, yeah, we get down there and the gate's gone. Like the, the physical gate that, you know, the barrier to stop anybody from entering the property is completely gone. And just at glance, I didn't even have to go down there, man. It, it was just, it, it was a ghost town where, I mean, even my race car was gone. Hmm. Uh, I had a 73 Dodge Charger special edition down there with a 383 wedge that I was working on. Hmm. That was gone. Everything was gone. And so I make my way to my father's house and his door's open. It's cracked. You can see where somebody had kicked it and he's just sitting on the couch just like this. And I was like, Hey man, he just looks up at me and I was like, what in the hell? And he just kept shaking his head and he wouldn't say anything. And I said, Daddy, do you think this had something to do with Range 19? And he stood up, and pardon me for saying it. I don't know if you need to bleep it, just give me a heads up. But he looks at me, and he says, don't you ever say that to me again. Hmm. And he just told me to get the hell out. And so, you know, fathers and sons have arguments all the time. But that was, that was the last time he and I had a conversation. 
Mm-hmm. And I said before, that's the last time we had a civil conversation, but I think some didn't quite understand that I was just poking fun. That's the way we talked to each other, but there was just something different in his eyes that day. You know, me and him had a great relationship. Uh, you know, whenever I get a chance, I'm going to send you an email with the link that uh, WCT out of Wilmington came down and did a story on us when we were racing. And you could hear the things that we say about each other. And you, I mean, the guy was my hero. Yeah. It wasn't some jackass on TV. It wasn't some poster on my wall. It was that man. Mm. The first memory I had in this entire world was sitting in his lap at Dublin Motor Speedway and looking up at him. And that dude looked like a mountain to me. Hmm. <laughs> he was, he was a beast of a man. He, he was a good man. It sounds it damn like good. It. And it's, it sounds like, it sounds like he knew, it sounds like he knew in that moment when you asked him, you know, was this about range 19? And he just, just didn't want to talk about it. And that, that's, that was the case, right? I mean, they, 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 they took everything from you guys. Absolutely. With the rapport that we had with Army Corps of Engineers on a first name basis, uh, the rapport that we had with senior ranking officers, not just in 18th, but 82nd, uh, the 105th engineers, um, uh, JSOC, you know, we knew these guys on a first name basis. And so they knew the caliber of uh, not just the type of professional that my father was, that we were as a team. They knew him personally, that he was just a good man. If he didn't earn it, he didn't want it. And that's the way he's been his whole life. You know, he was just a rock solid dude. Uh, There's, there's two questions that that come to mind, DC, if you don't mind me asking, the first one would be who did that to you guys, who took everything, who, basically you know ruined your lives in that moment and and took the business and took the equipment and took the money i mean who does that steven if you can answer that question then both of us will know Hmm. because i have no clue and i tried for the longest time um after that yeah he was blacklisted from brag they claimed that he was bid rigging which is the point i was going to get to before you know granted yeah, we were at Lanco Builders was in control of all of the operations that we took part in. We were, you know, the senior name on the bids, uh, the bid structure. But, you know, as a general contractor, you have to sub out almost 85 to 90 percent of the work mm. that you can't do yourself. So you just bring in subcontractors. And the accusation was was that my father had someone on the inside of the Army Corps of Engineers that gave us the peak bid that told us how much the DOD was willing to spend on these projects. And then they were saying that he took that information, went to all of his subcontractors, and is basically saying that, look, this is what your max bid can be to get it. Mm. And it was like their magic bid, you know, within ten or twelve thousand dollars of the highs and lows, you have that sweet spot in the middle that will earn you that contract. They claim that that's what he was doing. So basically, accusing him of a, a insider trading type of thing, right? Kind of. What, However, what there was zero paper trail. You know, if that was the case, the first thing I expected to get a a call from was at least, at the very least, a JAG, a representative from the DOD, CID, or even the district attorney. But none of those conversations ever took place. And it is uh, quite the coincidence that those accusations come up the day after you guys are at range 19 and see these, you know, levitating stones and whatnot. 
That's that's pretty uh, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? You know, for me, it was it wasn't losing everything. You know, I've been down that road before. We've had tough times before. I'm no stranger to you know having something on Monday and by Friday it's gone. You know, we just we weren't built that way. It was just the fact that somebody took a hit, and it was us. And it's it's one thing to take a hit. You roll the punches, you get up. But when you don't know who's swinging and how hard and how far their reach is, that's dangerous because they completely crippled everything. And we'll actually touch on some of that stuff too. But I, I wanted to ask you a second question from that, and I and I hope you don't take offense to it because I'm, I'm sure you've been asked before. And it's not in a degrading way, but what was it that led you guys to both decide in that moment not to sign the NDA? Because I think what a lot of people would would pop into their head when they're listening to the, to you, when they're listening to us talk about this, a lot of people might say, well, gosh, why didn't they just sign the NDA? I mean, that could have avoided all their problems. But obviously there was something there. You know, that that's what the layperson would think. But what was it that led you guys to know in that moment, no, that's just not something that we're going to do right now? Well, before I answer that, I can tell you that every day since has been filled with absolute regret for not doing it. You know, I kick my own ass more than anybody. But in the moment, I can only speak for myself. Uh, I personally felt that with the security clearance that I already possessed in service and these guys that I served with, guys that I knew intimately outside of the military before I even joined the service, before I ever strapped boots on my feet and a flag on my shoulder, I knew these guys. So uh, I think part of me thought it was a joke. Right. Because. I, you know, and it was just naivety. It was ignorance because I thought, oh, well, I've got this security clearance. Why are you handing me this? Come on, man. You know me. So I was just like, whatever, dude. And I just laughed it off and walked away. Now, for my dad, uh, I don't know why he did it. And, you know, like I said, it would have been easier if we would have had time after that to talk to each other. But I don't think that my father was necessarily mad at me. I don't think he was pissed off at anything that we had done. He was probably furious that they took his livelihood from him in such an aggressive manner. And so fast, you know, I told, um, I told Sean Ryan that, and he asked me a similar question. I said, you know, it, it just didn't make sense to me because if I had to move all of that equipment at once, it would take me at least four days to a week right. just to plan it. Right. You know, just to lay out that advance as to what I'm going to do and where I'm going to take it. But it was so swift. It was like it was like an airstrike out of nowhere. Do you think they could have used that technology to move those things out so quick? You guys had a lot of heavy equipment. I have never considered that. Hmm. That is a that's an excellent point. I've never, it's, it's, damn, you just kind of blew my mind a little bit because I never, I never even put those two together. And it's, it would be a giant middle finger, you know, to do it that way, but it would be very efficient. Hmm. That's, that's outstanding, man. I never thought of that, Stephen. Yeah. I appreciate that. No, it's just, you know, it, 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 it popped into my head and it just started wondering because it would be I, ironic in the worst way possible. And I don't, you know, mean to, to pour salt on a wound or anything, but just to think about how could they have done that so quickly 
with all the heavy equipment you guys had and to move it out essentially overnight. It, now, it makes, don't it makes you wrong. wonder. It's in the past, you know, aside from never, I had never had intentions to talk about this publicly. Um, you know, and this may sound cheesy, but I'm telling you, it's from the heart. People like you, people like Lieutenant Colonel Donald W. Hecker that I met in, in D.C., Eric Hecker, uh, my good friend Michael Herrera, Dr. Greer, Emily. I could go through a list of names. Uh, two of my absolute best friends that I've met from this, aside from Hecker and Herrera, is uh, Andy and Kat Gordon from uh, Brisbane, Australia. Hmm. You know, I, we talk constantly, but all of you give me a strength that I've never had before. Hmm. You know, and I don't make any money from this. I'm putting a target on my back by even discussing this with you because those people who did this, you know, they live less than two hours from me. These people know where I am, you know, but you know, I deliver a, not a warning, not a threat, just a declaration. I was very talented and killed for my country. What do you think I'll do for my family? That would not be a wise decision. You know, I was willing to die for everybody in this country. And if they gave me an opportunity to do that, I would. One of the biggest regrets I had from every deployment that I had was I just didn't give enough. But you guys, the ones that I've met since this started, you know, you guys give me hope, man. You don't realize how much strength that you guys give, you know, people throw a lot of words around, you know, that me and I know the other guys just, we're very appreciative from the bottom of our hearts, but I never considered anything that I went through brave or heroic. I just felt like it was my duty to do it. You know, I felt like if I didn't do it, that I would not be complete. I feel like I just didn't give enough. You know, everybody who died for us, everybody who sacrificed, you know, they paid the tab. I want to leave the tip. I feel like I have so much more to give. But until all of this started, I damn sure couldn't do it by myself. And people's asked me, why have I decided to come out now for it? <clears throat> because honestly, I didn't know, excuse me, that the legislation had passed to protect the whistleblowers and the other people to bring this information to light. Right. I had no clue. It's just when I sent that to Dr. Greer, um, Right at a year ago, I never planned to be around to answer any questions for it. If you get my drift, I was just, and it wasn't like I was depressed. I wasn't necessarily suicidal, maybe in denial, but I just, I was just so damn tired, man. It was so hard, not just with the things that happened with my father, you know, from the first time that I was in combat to the last the amount of death and destruction that it just, it wraps you like a second skin that you just can't take off. And, you know, it's easy to look at the rapport that we have and the conversations that we have and be like, man, those guys have no cares in the world. You'd be surprised. You know, I don't sleep four hours a night and clear every room that I enter because I'm just, want something to do at night. I, I just, I can't sleep. I'm afraid of dreaming. Hmm. I'm afraid of closing my eyes and seeing my father again. Dude. And it's, it's something that does soften over time with people right. like you, you know, with the guys that I met there, 
with Andy and Kat. You know, just amazing people that make you feel like you're wearing armor again. Hmm. And uh, I can't thank you guys enough, man, because it's it's a journey and it doesn't stop. Well, I think that's that's the best point to make is that it is a journey and the journey doesn't necessarily have, you know, a, a golden finish line at the end. There's always steps that you're taking. And so I appreciate that very much. I mean, just to say those kind words, um, you know, I, I can't say how much I appreciate you, you saying that. And if I can help, if I'm helping in any way, any minuscule way for anybody, for yourself or for for my career or for anybody who's listening, then that's, uh, you know, that makes it all worth it. So thank you. But obviously, you know, we we, we look at you guys the same way. So it's it's reciprocated um, when it when it comes to, the, you know, the admiration I've told you and Mike off the air before the admiration that I have for you guys and what you've done for our country in the past and what you're doing now in a different aspect. And I'm really happy that um, Dr. Gr- you and Dr. Greer were able to, to get together and kind of help you, you know, to, to, to prop you back up because you were you were in a dark place. I know your, your father passed away. Um, you got to speak to him again one more time, you know, before he passed away, which that's you, you had told that story in Washington, D.C. And I was happy to hear that when I was sitting in that conference room listening to you speak, I was just to give you a little insight, I was relieved when you got to that portion of your story as, you know, I know your, your father and yourself went through very, very tough times after you lost everything. Um, but I was relieved to hear that you at least did get to speak with him one more time before he passed away. And I'm happy that you were able to get together with Dr. Greer because, you know, now here we are. And you've been able to get this story out there. And I think it gives people hope that shows, you know, you can be at your lowest lows and get back to a point where you feel like, yeah, you know what? I got a reason to, to, to keep going. Man, it's, I was never, I was never conditioned for any of this. You know, it, and I loved it. The disclosure event in DC, I think what they were doing was absolutely amazing. But unfortunately, we were on a, a very tight time crunch. Mm-hmm. And so it was difficult to, to get those details and, you know, to, not even to make it personal, but just to paint a broader picture, to let people know that, yeah, you know, this isn't just an isolated incident with, oh, God, what's that weird, huh? Okay, let's go. And yeah, it's, we made nothing. I can't stress that enough. I've read a few comments, people saying, oh, well, these guys are this or that. They're Illuminati or whatever. These guys are paid actors. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> I am not that smart. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, and I, and I get it. I, I get that, look, there's always going to be skeptics, right? And that's why I think it's important. It's, it's more than, than important. It's it's vital that you and and Mike and Eric Hecker and everybody have, come out to speak about what has happened to them, what they've seen, the experiences that they've gone through, the intimidation factors that you've gone through and are still going through. I mean, to have, like we said, everything gone overnight and have to essentially start over again. And now even, you know, these days, we, we you and I spoke about, and if you don't mind me bringing up, some of the intimidation that you're going through now. I mean, as as yeah. as we speak, this isn't something that happened back in 2010. This is stuff that's happening in 2023. Yeah, and some of those things are ongoing, and I'd love to go into more detail about it, but um, I can't because, in a sense, I don't want it to stop. 
I want them to carry on thinking that they're going to do something that's going to shake my feet or move me from the position that I put myself in. And that is absolutely not going to happen. I'm going to catch them. And if I want, somebody will. Because the fact of the matter is, I don't give a damn how much money they've got. You know, I can't stress this enough. We make nothing from this. We have nothing to gain from this other than knowing that the information is out there, that people are going to benefit from it. But they fail to realize just how outnumbered they are. And I can't sit there and say who they are. We know they're there. We see their work. You know, we see the scars that they leave behind. And there's very few people that do know who they are. And unfortunately, our puppeted government at this point is just doing everything that they're told. And it is sad. But in a sense, I don't want it to stop because then that means that what we're doing here is a threat to them. Whatever livelihood they consider or whatever agenda that they're putting on the table, we're interfering with that. And that makes me so happy. Hmm. And I think, to know that we're keeping them awake at night. And you are. And I, I didn't tell you this yesterday, but, you know, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time for this. But I completely uh, turned down the Daily Mail to do an interview today, to do an interview with you. Because the people that I talk to in the circles that I write in, is, and it wasn't a long conversation. They're like, hey, man, Steve is a good guy. You need to go over there. That's the way to go. And that's, it didn't bother me at all. Not to say the fact that I, I was happy that I didn't have to fly to Los Angeles. <laughs> but, I, you know, I would much rather do it right here than over there. Well, I appreciate that so much, DC. And I'm sorry that I, I couldn't um, fly you down to South Florida to do it in, in person. But. <laughs> uh, you can keep that heat, man. This is perfect. <laughs> You're not kidding about that. The heat and humidity of South Florida in the summer is something else. No, but I really do appreciate that. That means a lot um, you know, for you guys to, to be willing to, to come on here and talk to me about these things and to have these conversations because it's not easy. And this is serious stuff. And some people would even say that, you know, I'm putting myself out there too much, but and I don't. Uh, well, that thought crossed my mind. You know, and you know, you're putting the target on your back too. It's it's, it's crossed but, my mind. Well, you've got troops on your side now, so you know. And I don't give a damn about the heat. I don't care what time of day it is. If somebody threatens you because of this, you just call me and tell me how fast you want me to get down there. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> it's. Uh, I'm not it, just saying that because we're recording, man. As far yeah. as I'm concerned, your family at this point, I, we've got your six. We're not going to let nothing happen to you guys. Thank you. No, that's um, it means a lot because it is. It's it's something that I think about here and there, and I try not to because this is. It's very important. It's just something that's that's, you know, it's burning with inside of me that this, these conversations need to continue to happen. They need to be elevated, and that's why I think it's it's so vital to. You know, it's continue to talk to to you, to Mike, and I know you know eventually. And um, plan on plan on speaking to uh, Eric Hecker and and Colonel Heckert and more people in the future as we go on. So it's um, you know, it's it means a lot that that we can have these conversations. So I'm just gonna keep going as long as you guys keep going. I'll keep going as well. Hey man, that's that's all we ask. Let me ask you, because I'm sure there's people wondering, DC, have you, because I know Mike did, and, and I assume you did, but I want to ask to make sure, um, were, did you testify under oath with any type of, in a, any type of uh, Senate intelligence 
setting, yeah, conventional we went through, setting? Yeah. You did, okay. Yeah, we went through multiple iterations. And even now, um, I'm glad you brought that up. We talked about it earlier with the um, – the uh, aerial photographs that the geospatial engineer volunteered, uh, Dr. Greer and his wife sent me uh, those details. And they told me uh, that uh, Herrera's story, as well as mine, have been corroborated by multiple sources. Um, and they're trying to work on getting a few to come forward. But some of those guys are still active duty. They can't they can't budge. You know, they're, they're definitely putting their lives in danger in a line unit by releasing that kind yeah. of information. You know, and if you know, we both know if they were caught, they would never make it out of Leavenworth or Guantanamo. How many people would you say active? And of course, without giving any names or rank or anything like that, of course, but how many people would you say in your estimation have come across these things or have seen you know, unexplainable phenomenon in, in, in the air that would resemble a, you know, a UAP that's in the, in the upper echelons of service. Yeah. And just, you know, the ones that are willing to talk, the ones that are kind of itching to say, OK, you know what, maybe I will come out under this whistleblower protection act. But, you know, I'm, I'm worried about my safety and the safety of my family. Do you, Is that a high number, do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. If I had to take a swag at it, I'd say it was at least 85 to 90 percent because, you know, just like any line unit or any other unit in service, doesn't matter the branch, you know, we all talk to each other. And whenever you get to a certain level, you know, the BS doesn't stop, but you can tell a lot about someone's eyes. And when you're working with people 24 hours a day, you know, eight months out of the year. I mean, that's your surrogate family. You spend more time with these guys than you do with your own family. Right. So, you know, whenever they're pulling your leg, but, and these teams are so small and organized as individuals, especially with STB, you know, it's going to be witnessed by every single one of them, but it's a, a rock and a hard place because you come back and you know, the first thing that you're going to, to face is a debrief and you know exactly what they're going to tell you. You didn't see anything. And it's absolutely redundant because that's like going through a murder trial and then telling a jury to disregard. You can disregard all you want on paper, but it's still in here. You still witnessed it. You still saw it. Right. There's still quite a few things that I can't discuss, and I wish that I could. But the time's coming. You know, these guys are getting old like me. So they're <laughs> going to get out. <laughs> We're going to have a good time. It's all in timing, I suppose. In your experience, did you see anything, again, like you said, you can't really go into uh, specifics on, on some things that I'm sure you went through in the skiff and talking to Arrow and things like that, but were there things that were in the air, some stuff that was on the ground, stuff that resembled otherworldly technology, like, you know, the vibrations that were being used to, you know, essentially float these giant stones and the monolithic stone that you saw? What was it that, I guess without giving specifics, if you can... Other things that kind of caught your eye that said, wow, like this stuff is either not human or it was taken from something that, you know, we don't even know about. Absolutely. Uh, there have been aerial phenomena and there was one instance um, that took place in Iraq during my first deployment. And, you know, I didn't know if it was combat stress. And honestly, at the end of the day, that's what I attributed it to was was combat stress. Um, we were in the city of Tuz, uh, north of Baghdad, 
and it was right in between uh, Kirkuk and Tikrit, and it was a mountain range just to the north of us. And one day we were on a, a guard point called Red Five, and there was a slide that came over the mountain, which at the time didn't really seem significant. It, it could have been one of ours because, you know, we were knocked up. So I was using the PBS 14s and I see this coming over and I thought that it was two C-130 side by side, which again, wasn't anything, uh, wasn't anything that really set any alarms off, but this thing came over the mountain and then went right below the city and then just took off. And in an instant it was right with us. And then it was up and gone again. And I was like, yep, that's enough for me. I need to request days off. He'd go to sick call or something, <laughs> but it was uh, so strange. And me and the guy that we're with, he's dead now. His, his name was Matt Callahan. Hmm. Wonderful guy. He saved my life. But um, we didn't, we made a point to make sure that we did not discuss that with anybody else because nobody else saw it. And I was like, well, nobody else is going to believe it. Absolutely not. But, um, God, there's so much I would love to be able to say that there was an, another instance that took place in Kandahar that I would really love to get into, but I just can't. Yeah. yeah. But I have full faith and confidence that soon, very soon we'll be able to, because I know that one of the other operators that was there has an ETS coming up in, in uh, August, I believe. Okay. <laughs> it's yeah. <laughs> I'll call you back. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we'll set the date. I really wish we could, man, because it, it was, it was next level. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there was even, uh, Oh God, I can't tell that one either. That it sucks. <laughs> I'll tell you what though. I'll call you on the phone <laughs> All right. or later after you get done. I really want to talk to you about that one. I, I know you're absolutely going to, blew my mind completely it was something that happened overseas in afghanistan and then whenever i was in the warrior transition battalion after my accident uh, we encountered each other again but uh, you'll understand later why that should not have happened okay physically okay we'll get it we'll get into that in a, in a uh, another discussion and when the time is right i guess we'll be able to reveal what, what that was um but yeah yeah you have me intrigued um some of those things, and I, I know, we, you know we've been talking for a while, DC. So I'll get you out of here soon. So, you know, get get you on with with your day. Um, but some of the things, you know, these things that we're talking about, whether it was these unexplained craft that you saw while you were deployed in uh, Iraq, or whether it was the technology being used to float these giant stones at Range Nineteen at Fort Bragg. Your best guess, your best estimation, are those things that we're seeing man-made technology just human advancement or is this stuff that's being reverse engineered that has come from you know somewhere else i believe personally that it was reverse engineered because we have some brilliant people on this earth but nobody's come close not even close on the civilian side of the house R&D for any other company. It doesn't matter how big or small that company is. No one has come close that they can match that level. I mean, maybe they can do it with something small, you know, something that you would have on your desk, but at that scale, it's absolutely, well, obviously not impossible, but for us as a race, at the level of civilization that we are, it's improbable. Can you can you say and if you can't that's totally fine. Um, can you say what companies you think are doing these things or entities, whatever? Is it 
and I put myself at risk here mentioning some of these names, but is it a Raytheon? Is it Lockheed? Skunk Works, of course, division of, of Lockheed. Is it Northrop Grumman? I mean, what type of contractors, what type all of, of those names. all of them you think they're involved all in this type of reverse engineering relevant. stuff? Yeah. You know, I was, um, how long ago has it been now? Uh, 2018, 2019. Um, I was in Los Angeles for about two and a half, three years. And I did some work for uh, Triple Canopy, Gavin DeBecker, and none of those were eventful in the sense that you know, nothing spectacular happened. However, whenever I took a weekend shift for one of my guys from Covered Six in Moorpark, California, um, with SpaceX, <laughs> hmm. there's next level stuff going on there. And it wasn't anything that, you know, I didn't see any aerial phenomena. I didn't see, you know, things that would lead me in that sense to believe that some next level stuff is going on. It's just some of the conversations for the people. And I should back that up and say that what I was doing there, I, I was an executive protection specialist while I was there and a personal protection specialist. So we were around some of the people who would just ignore us in the sense that we were just personal security. So some of the conversations that they were having about what they were doing, you know, what their uh, agenda was going into space. And it, it was, some of it was a little terrifying. I got to be honest with you because, you know, let's uh, first and foremost, I'm, you know, redneck from the South. So that prohibits me from having, you know, the ability to be as maybe as loquacious as you are. I just don't have that elocution about me. So you could explain these things better than I could, but, um, some of the things that they were talking about just, you know, when the distance of us and I did sign an NDA, so I couldn't go in detail with it, but it, it is, it really scared me. Hmm. I'm not going to lie to you. It, it, it scared me, you know? Um, and like I said before, I've never been the type to be a conspiracy theorist. So it's easy for me to filter a lot of these things that are going on from the things that I've been exposed to and aware of. What was it that, that scared you when you said you, you were at SpaceX, if you can talk about it? I know you said you signed the uh, NDA. What was it that kind of was like when you had the discussions that you had when you thought, whoa, this was, uh, this was a little wild? Uh, let me see how I can say this. There's a reason that there's so many satellites being sent up at once. You know, there was one... Um, uh, I think it was one of the Falcon heavies took up. No, it was an Aries rocket from Wallops that took up uh, 14 satellites. And at the same time, uh, China sent up the same. And these satellites, and you can look it up, they were shooting green lasers down at Hawaii. And they claimed that it was just to detect the carbon in the atmosphere to see if the ionosphere was breaking up. But it, they were basically target mapping U.S. military installations. And one of these satellites may or may not have had a payload that was not designed to look out into the expanse of space. It's looking straight down at us. But, you know, I heard a story one time that there was this, uh, it was a great story. It had this, um, this aircraft that was floating about 300,000 feet above the earth. And it uh, had a weapon on it that, could generate so much force that whenever it hit the ground at 
such a speed, it can impact an area about a hundred miles. Um, and on the way down, it would segment and it would generate a nuclear electromagnetic pulse that could paralyze any grid, any cell phone communication, any GPS. It was a great story. I got to tell you, hmm. but you know, I couldn't really say, you know, what else SpaceX had up their hand, but you know, those are DOD contracts that they have with them that uh, the department of defense will take payload, put it on the set on the, uh, the uh, rockets that they should fire off. And it doesn't matter if it's from Wallops, from Kennedy, from uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, from Boca Chica, the same things are going up there. These, you know, communication satellites that have a direct relationship with the ground, if you will. Hmm. Okay. Fair enough. I'm just, I- I'm trying to be very particular. No, I get it. I get it. And I don't want to put you in any. It was a great story. I don't (laughs) believe that it's true, but it was a great story. Yeah. I mean, I I don't want to put you in any, um, you know, compromising positions. Oh, hell, man. The worst (laughs) they could do is sue me. And what the hell are they going to take from me? (laughs) I have nothing. (laughs) All all good. Oh, you you mentioned the, uh, the accident, and that's. It's something that I meant to ask you about earlier, and I apologize for asking so late in the interview now. It's important to what we spoke about with what you guys saw at Range 19, because this happened, what, like a couple of days after? Yeah, it was within it was within two weeks. It was a JFX combat jump, and um, really long story short, um, I was uh, the first in the stick, one of uh, 12 guys, and we were getting ready to jump, and... Long story short, this guy comes out of nowhere, hooks up right to my right shoulder, and it's the guy who slid the NDAs across the table. Same person. Wow. Okay. Exact same person. Wow. And you know, it's it's not just hey, this guy looks similar. I I know this guy. I've known this guy you know, since I was twelve, thirteen years old. And um, it, we call it cut me out of the door. He threw his static line, which snapped my neck whenever his line went taut after he exited the aircraft. Uh, and I went out of the aircraft. Uh, like I said, uh, it was a combat jump. So I had, you know, full tactical. I have my 1950s weapons case, my uh, pack, uh, my combat pack right between my legs. And if you ask any paratrooper, you can't stand up straight whenever you're rigged up and you've already been JMPI'd, you know, you're hunched over almost and you have to waddle out of the airplane yeah. with this, you know, 20 pound pack between your legs and a weapon right in your armpit. <laughs> but he uh, cut me out of the door, snapped my neck. I flipped out of the aircraft, which deployed my lower in line and my combat pack and my weapon. So I'm falling through the air thinking that I've got a canopy malfunction and it was just an oscillation. But the problem was, is I couldn't reach up to uh, fix the malfunction because my arms wouldn't work. Uh, they were completely numb. And I remember looking down and I saw the sky. So I knew I was in trouble at that point, mm. but my canopy's up here. I'm down here. The lower in line is, uh, I think there were 25 meters below us, 25 feet. And it was just swinging back and forth. And before I hit the ground, my canopy went, I went inverted. My canopy hit the ground and I fell into it. And then mm. I was out. Uh, the only thing that I remember in that moment was that 
a noise. It sounded like a damn tree falling in the mm. woods, how it snaps and breaks. But my body made that sound 40 times over. Mm. I had so many injuries from it, and it, it ruined my career. Uh, I mean, my career was over. And I woke up in the hospital sometime later. I think it was about two weeks. And I had an MEB. You know, I, I, they sent me to the Warrior Transition Battalion to reasonably heal so I could transition to civilian life. And it was it was downhill, man. Man. And so this was somebody that you knew for a long time. This was the same person who slid the NDA to you when you were coming out of range 19. And this person... I guess well at 18th Airborne headquarters, right? And 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 this person tried to kill you. Yes. Did you ever get to talk to them again after that? To get any type of explanation? To see maybe in the back of your head you thought to yourself, "There's no way that this guy I've known for this long actually tried to kill me. That had to have been an accident." Did you? Did, were you able ever able to speak to him again? No. Um. Hmm. I'm just trying to be careful here. Yeah, yeah. There's there's many things that I wanted to do, many things that I was capable of doing, but I had much more to lose. Yeah, and and that's that's the hardest point in a man's life when you have to show genuine restraint to a traumatic event that you know was done intentionally. You know, I can handle you know, things that happen in combat as traumatic as they are. You know, my heart breaks for it, but I can understand that we volunteered to be there. Shit happens. Mm-hmm. But this, you know, that was, it just, it opened my eyes to a lot of things, but it also closed it to more because I, after that, I lost everything. You know, I ended up homeless. And, um, and fast forward to whenever, you know, we found out that my dad was dying Exactly one week after my father was buried, um, I get a knock at my door. I open the door, and I won't say which one, but it was one of those guys. Mm. And they handed me a note that said, thinking of you. And the guy looked up, he's like, hey, buddy, sorry for your loss. And he gets in his truck and drives away. Gave you a wink like everything was all right. And Dr. Greer and I were talking about this. Um, He was like, well, did you feel like that was intimidation or did they were trying to hurt you? I was like, no, because if they wanted to do that, I would have never seen it coming. They had plenty of opportunities. I think it was just a way of saying, I can touch you at any time. I can reach out and grab you. And my kids were right behind me, man. So there were many things in that moment. There was many things I could have done, but that would have led to me losing everything. And I was just so tra- uh, traumatized, you know, not just by my accident, but just losing my father. Sure. And it, it uh, that was a true test of my, my character. Because, you know, like I said, it, I wanted to put an ass whipping on him that Jesus Christ couldn't pray off, <laughs> but I, I could not reach out and touch him. I'm not going to do that in front of my children. Right. You know, if I do that, then everything that I stood for and teach them is a lie. And, you know, I can't do it. But it it, it was very sober, very sober experience. It's the last question I'll ask on this, and then, and then we'll wrap up, DC. And thanks, thank you so much for taking so much time. And Because um, I think some people will, will wonder, 
in their own heads when they tell when they listen to you tell the story about you know the accident, quote unquote. They'll they'll wonder to themselves, well, how did he know it was an accident? How how or how did he know it was on purpose? Couldn't it have been an accident. So, what led you to know yourself just in the procedures that go on in that you know aircraft before you guys jump? What led you to know there's no way like that was done on purpose? That was intentional. They tried to kill me. Well, first, you know, not just to shout out the riggers and the the amazing job that they do, but you're your life is literally in their hands. These guys don't make a mistake, you know, and you can't prevent a mistake from happening with the equipment. But I do know that, and every paratrooper watching will tell you the same thing. Yeah, it happens, but a lot of times that's operator error, you know, but whenever you get to that point, whenever you reach a certain echelon of military service, you don't make mistakes like that. Hmm. It's, it's inconceivable. Now, if, if somebody were willing to make a mistake in that sense, it would just be suicidal and they do it to themselves. There is nothing that is going to shake a paratrooper's focus whenever you're taking commands from the jump master and you know what it is that you're getting ready to do. Even if, you know, you're jumping out of this aircraft to assault an objective while you're in that aircraft, that objective doesn't matter. You're not thinking about that. We are not trained exhaustively to do that. You know, paratroopers just don't make that kind of mistake. And it doesn't matter if you're a cherry jumper, you know, at, at you know, the 501st. It doesn't matter if you, you know, just made your first, you know, pie jump in the infantry line units. I don't care if you're 82nd to 101st. You don't make mistakes like that. We're not trained to make mistakes like that. We, you know, I've seen, you know, uh, many accidents that have happened similar to mine, but it was on the line units. It was on the guys. But whenever you get you know, to Ranger Regiment, whenever you get to Delta, Special Forces, SEALs, any of these guys, those mistakes are not made. Hmm. The most you would have is to deal with a canopy malfunction outside of the aircraft. It's just it's inconceivable. Well, I'll, you know, I'll, that's the same way as saying, all right, Stephen, you know, <laughs> you go pick your kid up and you just drop them. Yeah. You're not going to do that. Right. It's something that's basic, something simple. Yeah. Well, to us, that was the same. Right. But, you know, there's life and death consequences. And we realize that before you exit that aircraft, there's a very particular sequence of events and it's constant communication. From then telling you, you know, to sound off for your equipment check, 30 seconds, hook up, you know, to go. You're basically told everything that you need to do. You don't have to think for yourself. You're just sitting there holding your static line. In my case, I'd already handed my static line off, and I'm just sitting there holding my reserve, ready to go out, looking at the horizon. And the next thing I know, a static line slaps me in the face from somebody that is beyond Special forces, if you catch what I'm telling you, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of mistakes aren't made. He could be blistered three sheets to the wind with the devil's lettuce in his lungs. Mm-hmm. He's still not going to make a mistake like that because at that point, it's automatic. It's beyond muscle memory. It's soul recognition. It just, you know, <laughs> it's like loving your kids. You just do. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody yeah. had to tell you to love them and protect them. But that was the way we looked at it. And I've been asked that question many times, but it's funny. I've never been asked that question from a paratrooper Hmm. because they know. Right. 
and that's that's probably the best way to put it. So I'll, I'll get you out of here on on this, DC. Um, what's the end game for you? What is what is something that you say to yourself? Okay, if we reach this point, I'm gonna feel good about what I'm trying to do here and, and getting the word out and trying to talk about what's happening behind the scenes and the nefarious acts, the secret, you know, government, so to speak, of people who are acting behind even, you know, congressional oversight. What What is it that's going to make you feel like, okay, I've, I've, I've done good here because this happened? Personally, I know that I'm never going to be satisfied because there's always going to be people unless people like us do something about it. There's always going to be people that consider themselves over us because they have more money than us. And for those of us that, you know, we just want to get by, we just want to be happy and we want to see others around us happy. To me, it's just that simple. I want to get to a point that we're, where everything is just a free flow of honest information, not to cover your sick so you can make some shady deal with somebody so you can get rich for what, man? I mean, I'm 43 years old. If I live to be, a, you know, 80, my life has had more than halfway over. Hmm. Why would I need all that crap to make me happy? What would make me happy is to make sure that we get the disabled veterans off the streets, the homeless veterans off the streets in this BS shadow culture that we have in the government that does everything in their power to hold people like us down. Mm. You know, they could have just politely said, Hey, don't say nothing. They didn't have to take our entire livelihood. They didn't have to take my health, you know? And those are things that every moment of every day, I'm constantly reminded of my shortcomings and deficiencies and my ailments. And, you know, I can't do anything about that, but what I can do is rally the people who need to be there. If they need a helping hand, I'll pick them up. Like I told you, somebody messes with you. You tell me how fast you want me to get there. And that ain't just me talking. God help the person that makes that mistake. I'll stump a mud hole in their ass and walk it dry. But it doesn't just have to be somebody in that sense. It's somebody who wants to infringe upon the freedoms of the people of this world, not just America. Nobody should ever have to look over their shoulder and think that, you know, you have to be told everything to do that at any moment, your entire livelihood can be taken by changing a one to a zero, which is essentially what they did to us. Yeah. You know, they didn't just ruin my life and my dad's life. All the employees that we had, they lost jobs. A lot of them lost their house because that's the only thing that they've ever known. Mm. You know, I just, that's such a multifaceted question. It's difficult to answer. I just want people to feel the kind of peace in their heart that I do, believe it or not. You know, I don't care what God they pray to. How damn hard is it just to care about the person to your left and right? Yeah. You know, and that's why I chose to do this here with you than, you know, other outlets that were dangling cheese in front of my face saying, look, this, look what we can give you to do this. I'm like, man, I'm not out for that. I don't want to make a living doing this. You know, if it ends up that way, then that's well and good, but I damn sure I'm not going to start out that way. Right. You know, that's, I'm a praying man. And I thank God for every opportunity that I have to still breathe. So honestly, hell man, I don't know, Steven, I really don't know what I want in this world. I just know that I don't want to stop. I want 
I still have that insane need to protect. You know, and it's not just, you know, the people here in my house, the people that I love, the people I know personally, you know, it's everybody. It's all of us. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think uh, that's I think that's a good enough answer, DC. I think you you answered that really well. No, that's, that's that's really well said. And I really appreciate you coming on here, UAP Weekly. This, I guess, what turned into an extended edition. But uh, honestly, I could talk uh, to you. I really apologize for that, no, man. No, 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 no. I mean, you know, there was a lot that we wanted to cover, a lot of ground we wanted to cover. And I think it was worth going a little long here today. Um, I could probably talk to you for another two or three hours. But amazing. Thank you for joining uh, UAP, UAP Weekly here today. Thank you for having me, man. It really means a lot. Yes, we'll talk soon. Godspeed, brother. Yep. Man, what what a great guy and great job by DC. Thanks again uh, for his time today to join me on UAP Weekly. That really meant a lot. Um, and all those kind words that he threw out there as well. I, I swear to you, I didn't ask him to say that or anything. That was on his out of his own uh, volition and the kindness of his heart. So thank you again for all that time. And thank you for listening today. I know this is, I think this is the longest. I've set a new record now. We beat the record that I set with the Michael Herrera interview. So congratulations, DC Long. You beat Mike here on uh, the longest episode in UAP history. So we'll get out of here on that. Not much more to say. A lot has been said today. And uh, I'll just say before we go, thank you again for listening. Thank you to everybody, uh, all the new followers on Twitter. I do appreciate you. I do appreciate you putting your trust in me after the craziness that took place this weekend. Um, I will not disappoint you, and I will continue to do my best right here on the show and on social media as well to give you all the latest of what is going on. And on good old-fashioned UAP as well, working on episode 72 as we speak. So I hope to have that out to you as well soon enough uh on twitter at u8 podcast 850 is where you can find me if you like to email the show you can get to me uh just regular old gmail at sdienerUAP at gmail.com that's s-d-i-e-n-e-r-u-a-p at gmail.com also a little teaser for the future um i mentioned i think on the previous episode episode 71 actually with oppenheimer and einstein i mentioned how uh snooki from the Jersey Shore is a fan of the show and we, her and I have been speaking through email a little bit and she's mentioned the show on uh, Twitter before and I appreciate her. She's actually agreed to come on the show so you can look forward to an interview with, with Snooki soon enough. I look forward to speaking with her. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, a great time and a lot more to come to look forward to right here on UAP, UAP Weekly, Unidentified Alien Podcast. And of course, maybe it goes without saying, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the hearing next week. So going to be a big week, a lot of big things coming up and you can look forward to it all coming up here on UAP. That's going to do it for me. Thank you again so much for everything. Really appreciate all of the, uh, all the love you guys are showing me and the show until next time. There's going to be much, much more. I'm sure and I'll speak to you again soon. And Steven Dean are right here. UAP. Thank you.